Thank you very much. I'm going to keep talking. Oh, good. I can hear myself. That's great. Well, it ha- I just want you to know before I begin this morning, it has been a, such a joy for Gretchen and me to be up here. Thank you all for the invitation. Thank you for coming uh, to the conference, coming now. Um, obviously, I'm glad, especially you're here this morning for worship of God. But, um, but we've had a, a wonderful time getting to know you and being able to be with you. I look forward to looking at God's Word this morning with you. If you have your Bibles, do turn, please, to Psalm 130. And I'm going to read that and then pray, and we will get started looking at this wonderful text. So, Psalm 130, hear the Word of the living God. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. O God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Would you now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, impress it upon each of us here, wherever we are this morning, meet us, change us, reveal your glory in Jesus Christ to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Why does God feel so far away from me? Can God really Will he really forgive me? I don't know two questions that are more poignant than those two. I've asked them myself. I've been asked for help by others. These are two of the most deeply troubling questions a person can ever wonder about. Why does God seem so far away from me? Can he truly forgive me. I bet you've asked them yourself. And if you've asked them yourself, you're not, you're not alone. Martin Luther, whom we've heard a little bit about over the course of this weekend, asked these questions himself an awful lot. Remember, this is the same Martin Luther who came to his biblical understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone as he rediscovered the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially in Paul's epistle to the Romans. This is the the same Martin Luther who started what we now in hindsight call the Protestant Reformation. But what deeply troubled Luther as he was looking at Paul's epistle to the Romans was this question about his relationship with God. Could God truly forgive him? I want to 
give you just a little bit of an insight. Luther spoke about this time in his life, and he spoke about himself here in the third person, much like the Apostle Paul did in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So let me read just a little of Luther's very poignant words about this time in his life when he was struggling to know if God could or would ever forgive him. I myself knew a man, he said, who claimed that he had often suffered great punishments, in fact, over a brief period of time, yet they were so great and so much like hell that no tongue could adequately express them, no pen could describe them, and one who had not himself experienced them could not believe them. And so great were they that if they had been sustained or had lasted for half an hour, even for one-tenth of an hour, he would have perished completely, and all of his bones would have been reduced to ashes. At such a time, God seems terribly angry, and with him, the whole creation. At such a time, there is no flight, no comfort, within or without, but all things accuse. In this moment, The soul cannot believe that it can ever be redeemed other than the fact that the punishment is not yet completely felt. All that remains is the stark, naked desire for help and a terrible groaning. But it does not know where to turn for help. In this instance, the person is stretched out with Christ so that all his bones may be counted. And every corner of the soul is filled with the greatest bitterness, dread, trembling, and sorrow in such a manner that all these last forever. Luther might more poignantly describe, I think, the experience of many of us wondering, can God ever forgive me? That's Luther speaking about himself prior to seeing the gospel and coming to Christ for forgiveness. But this was an ongoing struggle in Martin Luther's life. Years after he'd seen the glorious gospel of Jesus and knew that he'd been forgiven of his sins, he wrote this to a friend. Listen to this. This is Martin Luther, the reformer. For more than a week, I've been thrown back and forth in death and hell. My whole body feels beaten. My limbs are still trembling. I almost lost Christ completely, driven about on the waves and storms of despair and blasphemy against God. That's Martin Luther, feeling like he was in danger of being stretched and separated from God. He begged his friend to pray for him. So, wherever you are in these questions that we constantly have going on in our minds, I just want you to know, friends, you're not, you're not alone. Others have asked these questions. Martin Luther might describe the difficulties here more poignantly than you or I do. He might have experienced perhaps a more acute form of something we might call spiritual depression, what the old Puritans used to call melancholy, more than you and I do. Maybe yours has been an ongoing sense of spiritual malaise, a kind of lawness, 
not seeming to feel as excited as you once did about the things of God. I don't know exactly where you are. But many, many believers in Scripture and in church history have struggled with exactly what I and you over the years, different days, different weeks, struggle with as well. Scripture has much to say to us about how to live in the midst of these questions. What do we do when we're struggling like this? And I want to turn our attention this morning then, as you can guess, to Psalm 130. Why Psalm 130 to answer these kinds of questions? We could look many places, of course, in Scripture. It's interesting that Psalm 130 has actually, throughout the history of the church, been a psalm that many, by God's grace, have found comfort in, in exactly these periods of questioning themselves. It was a means that the Lord used, for example, to bring assurance of salvation to John Owen, the great English Puritan pastor and theologian, who even while he was pastoring was struggling with questions of, can Jesus really forgive me? It was the means that the Lord used to awaken John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, who heard this psalm sung on the same day that he said his heart was strangely warmed and he came to an assurance of salvation. And it was this psalm that Martin Luther said was his little Pauline psalm. I love that. His little Pauline psalm because he said, here in eight verses we have all of the gospel of Jesus Christ just encapsulated in very brief form. So that's why we're looking at it this morning. It brought great comfort to Wesley and Owen and Luther, and my prayer is that it will bring great comfort to you and to me this morning as we dive into some of what Psalm 130 teaches us. Whether you're a Christian here this morning struggling with some deep spiritual questions and doubts, or a Christian who feels like you're doing well, praise God, who's going to be helping other people in their struggles with these kinds of questions and doubts. Or maybe, and I'm really happy that you're here, maybe you're here and you're, you're not trusting in Jesus. And I pray that this morning you will both be miserable as you see your sin and the condemnation that your sin will bring upon you, but that also God, by His grace, will give you spiritual eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus that alone can forgive you of the debt that you owe to God. So we're going to look at Psalm 130 here now in three different points. That's not because I'm a Southern Baptist preacher and I've got to find three points in the text. I actually think there are three main truths in this psalm that we're going to see here this morning. I hope that as I speak about Psalm 130, you'll agree that these are the main truths of it. So first of all, we're going to see what is the nature of the problem that the psalmist recounts for us. Why 
Why is he despairing? Second, we'll see what his response to that despair is. How, how does he respond to that despair? And then third, and finally, and this is the climax where everything is going, we're going to see God as the one, the only one, who can relieve that despair and bring solace when everything else is tumultuous. So the source of despair, the response to the despair, and then God as the only one who can bring comfort to our sense of despair. So as we start looking at the psalm this morning, I want us to understand, first of all, what the psalmist's source of despair is. What, what is this unnamed psalmist so upset about? Well, look at verse 1. He begins by saying, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So the distress that our psalmist is speaking about is fundamentally, I think, the anguish that he feels about the state of his relationship with God. So I think depths in the Psalms can be broader than that. They, they could speak about the hardships of life, and there are many hardships of life, right? We all live in a fallen world where we're affected by sin constantly, sin in creation, right? Sin in others, sin in ourselves. It's part and parcel of living in a fallen world. God's people often, don't we, we often feel overwhelmed by difficulty. That's what the depths are, right? We're sinking down under them. Many, many sincere Christians, though, I fear, have struggled over the years because they've been taught that those things are not normal, right? If, if we just had enough faith, if I just trusted Jesus enough, then things would go fine and I'd never have any problems, or I'd have fewer problems. But that just is wrong, right? That, that's not what Paul told to young Christians where he said, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of heaven. There are going to be many tribulations in this life, brothers and sisters. You know that. Many of you have been walking with Christ longer than I have. And that's what we've signed up for. And the Lord will be with us. But specifically, what I want you to see in our psalm is that I think the depths that the psalmist is speaking about here are of a spiritual nature. Look down at verse 3 with me. And there he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Think, just think about that question. I am convinced that is truly the most serious, scary question we can ever ask of God or of ourselves. If God, who sees everything, who knows every motivation all the time of everything we do or don't do, if God were up there tallying up right and wrong things, right and wrong motivations, right and wrong thoughts, we would have no hope. If you, 
O Lord, should mark iniquities. O Lord, who could stand? I don't think I'm being hyperbolic in saying that is the scariest question in the universe. Financial troubles are hard, right? Medical health questions are challenging. But the reality is you're going to deal with them for a few decades, maybe several decades, and then they'll be over. Right? But this will not be over. If God marks our iniquities and we have no way of standing before him, then for all of eternity we will be in trouble because Scripture clearly teaches that for those who are not forgiven by God, what awaits is an eternity of eternal physical condemnation and punishment in a place that the Bible calls hell. So the depths here is speaking about the manifestations and the repercussions of our rebelliousness against God. One writer has said that the depths evokes the sea of troubles in which the speaker is engulfed, a death-like situation of separation from the living God. Let that language sink in for just a second. A death-like situation of separation from the living God. What? What could be more scary, more ominous than that? That's what the the psalmist is describing for us here in verse 3. Let's, let's pause just for a minute to think about iniquities. I've used the word sin. The psalmist here in verse 3 uses the word iniquities. That's just Bible language for the same thing. I've also used the word rebellion. I think that might be a word that we can perhaps track with a little bit more. Sin gets thrown around a lot, right? And we can always compare ourselves with other people. I'm not quite as bad as she is or as he is. Or I've heard people say, well, sure I sin, but God forgives, right? That's his job, isn't it? You know, as if it's just not, not a big deal at all to give the God of the universe, who is Lord of everything, the finger, and swear at him as we're walking away and turning our back on him, right? That's what sin is. Sin is rebelliousness. We see it in children. We see it in other places in our world, and our culture around us. So we know what rebellion is. But the point is, I'm a rebel, and you're a rebel as well. Each one of us despises at some level the living God because I and you don't like it when people tell us what to do, right? I want to be God, and you want to be God. That's just the way we all are in Adam because we're all sinners. We all have much, much in common. So, sin, as a catechism our children learned years ago, is simply failing to do what God commands. So, God, not me or you, God is the standard. He commands, He tells us what we are to do, and if we're not doing it for His glory, if we're not doing it out of love for him, if we're not doing it out of love for other people, then we are failing, we are rebelling, we are committing iniquities. That's why the catechism 
continues and says that what every sin deserves, every little sin deserves the wrath, the anger, and punishment of God. So yes, God forgives, but he forgives those who've run to him for forgiveness. For those who don't, they will receive the wrath and the punishment of God. That's why it is so ominous a question that the psalmist asks here in verse 3. O Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? It's a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is no one, no one can stand before this kind of God. So the cry of verse 3 rings true to our consciences, doesn't it? If you, O Lord, marked iniquities, who could stand? I pray that if you're not trusting in Jesus right now, that you realize that this is true of you. Don't don't sugarcoat it. Don't think right now about all the people who've harmed you and done wrong to you. I know there are many. But the most significant question for you is, am I in a relationship of forgiveness with God? And what that means is that you need to, you must turn to him. You must turn to his son, Jesus, run to him and beg him out of his kindness to forgive you. Otherwise, he is indeed tallying up your iniquities. So this is what the sense of despair that the psalmist has is. Oh, Lord, who can stand before you. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, those who are trusting in Christ, that an ongoing sense of questioning, feeling, doubts in your soul, can God truly forgive me? Does he continue to love me? While I would not wish that upon any of us, myself or you, it is not uncommon in the history of the church. I've read a little bit about Martin Luther to you. I just want you to know that some giants of the faith that we look back to as stalwarts to learn from, and we have so much to learn from them, both living and dead, have struggled with this very thing. The hymn writer, William Cooper, struggled with this and attempted to kill himself several times because of his spiritual doubts. The missionary, David Brainerd, struggled for years with questions about, can God truly forgive me? The pastor and evangelist, Charles Spurgeon, for decades struggled with this, sometimes for days on end, lying in bed in the fetal position, unable to get out of bed. Again, I'm not wishing that on you. I'm not wishing that upon myself either. But, brothers and sisters, that's part, sometimes, for some of us, of living in a world that's corrupted by sin, where we trust in Jesus, but we're not yet fully, completely with him. I hope, though, that the next two points that we're going to see, if that's where you find yourself, 
This is what I would tell Cooper. This is what I would tell Brainerd. This is what I would tell Spurgeon. And this is what I would tell myself and you. I hope that these next two points give us some comfort in the midst of these kinds of despairs. So secondly, what do we do then? What do we do when we feel like we're in these depths? Well, the psalmist models for us exactly what we're to do. For one thing, we're to cry out to God. Look at verse 1 again. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And notice that he does it more than once. This is not just a one-time cry. Help. This is persistent. This is pleading time and and time again. He, He takes his argument to God based on how dire the situation. Look down in verse 2. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of mine. Here, the, the plural matters. My pleas, plural. My pleas for mercy. It's not a one-time event. This is a constant, the kind of demand that almost honestly seems irreverent. He is telling God what to do. This is not a please. This is, oh God, be attentive. This is an imperative. This is like a parent directing a child, a coach telling an athlete what to do, your superior officer commanding you in the military. This, This is, it seems irreverent, doesn't it? But we understand why this sorts of sort of things happens, right? Think about a child who is in very dire straits and needs mom's help, right? This is what doesn't happen. You know, she doesn't walk up to mom, put the hand on the leg, right? You all know what I'm talking about. And then wait for mom to finish the conversation and look down and say, yes, dear, what can I do to help? Mother... If you could, please, would you come to my aid, for I'm in a dire situation, right? That, that's just not the way we live and work in the world, right? What does the kid do? She screams. I'm not going to scream too loud. Help! Help! I need help! She does it because she recognizes the danger, the precarious situation that she is in. That's exactly, you see, what the psalmist models for us. This is what Jesus was telling us to do in the parable he gives us of the persistent widow, right? In Luke chapter 18, where he tells the story of this woman who's just annoying the judge time and time and time again until in exasperation he finally gives in and does what she's asking him to do. Why does Jesus tell us that parable? So, in his words, so that we would always pray and not lose heart. Always pray and not lose heart. Cry out to God. Verse 2, be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist gives us two other things in how he responds. He cries out to the Lord and then he tells us that since he can't of himself conjure up all that he needs to deal with this spiritual struggle he's having, he waits. He waits on the Lord. He waits for the Lord to come 
to his rescue. Look down at verses 5 and 6 where he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. My soul waits for the Lord. I will, I hope, always remember the situation where I've been closest myself to a drowning incident. We were at the beach at Wells in Maine, and I was sitting on the porch of the house looking at my two oldest sons who at that point must have been somewhere like four and three, somewhere in that neighborhood, years old. And um, the younger of the two fell out of the inflatable little boat that they were in. And um, I'm, of course, very concerned. And his older brother starts screaming. And I'm looking to see, okay, for Jonathan to come out of the water. And he's not coming out of the water. So I'm sure... I had the biggest adrenaline rush I've ever had in my life. I'm sure I ran and swam faster than I've ever done it in my life. And as I got pretty close to where the boat was, I opened my eyes in the very cloudy, cold, main salt water, and I saw my son holding onto the rope at the side of the boat, not struggling, just waiting, completely unable to do anything to save himself. Now, why his older brother was not helping is another matter altogether, but forget that. Just hanging there, pathetically waiting. And of course, the Lord is kind and he's with us to this day, waiting for me to come to his rescue. That's exactly what the psalmist models for us. Only God can come and bring the comfort that he needs. So he pleads with God. He cries out to him. He waits for the Lord. And he hopes. He hopes in God. He implores his fellow Israelites down in verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Now, this is not pie in the sky kind of hope of something that not ever going to happen, kind of like my hope of being an NFL place kicker. In case you're wondering, it did not happen. So it's not real, real hope, right? No, this is sure and certain hope because, as we'll see in our third point in just a minute, it's grounded not in us, but it's grounded in God. We call, right? To whom do we call? We call to God. We plead. With whom do we plead? We plead with God. We wait. What do we wait for? Wrong, wrong word, right? For whom do we wait? We wait for God. And we don't hope in the situation that we want, but we hope in God. That's why it is rock solid. And wherever we are today or tomorrow or next week or next year, We will change. Our situations will change. But the one thing in the universe that will never change is God. And that's our third point this morning. And the third point that the psalmist gives us this morning. And that is that we cry out in our despair and we cry out to God because God is the only one who can meet the deepest needs that I have and that you have. Now, the psalmist, I think, drives home this third point in three different ways. Firstly, 
he tells us that we hope in God and can find this comfort in God because God is gracious. Look at verse 4. There he says, but with you there is forgiveness. It's easy to just skirt over those words quickly, right? Let me say them again. But with you there is forgiveness. Right after the most scary question ever in verse 3. Notice the contrast, but, right? We grammarians might call that an adversative conjunction. It's contrary to what we would expect. But with you, there is forgiveness. No matter, friends, your past and the guilt that you feel from things that you've done in the past, no matter the present temptations you feel burdened with right now, this very moment, and how you feel like those are keeping you separated from the living God, those things matter. But what I want you to hear is that with God, there is forgiveness. God forgives, you see, because of who he is. He forgives because he is forgiving. He is gracious towards us. He gives us what we don't deserve, forgiveness, because he's gracious. Do you know that this morning? I pray that you will hold on to that rock-solid truth that God is gracious. Notice what the psalmist says at the end of verse 4. He says, with you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. Fear here doesn't seem to quite fit, does it? But I'm going to try to explain it so I hope that we understand what he's saying. This is not the kind of fear that an abused, beaten dog feels, you know, when its master comes into the room. That's not what the psalmist is speaking about here. Instead, what he means by fear at the end of verse 4 is that we should reverence God as holy. We should worship God as the holy one, and we recognize that when we know that only he can forgive sins. Only God is a sin-forgiving, iniquity-blotting-out God. I can't do it. You can't do it. Other false gods can't do it. But it's part of God's beautiful powerful, gracious holiness. This is who our God is. That's why we reverence him and worship him as this kind of God. Verses 7 and 8 also highlight for us that grace that our God has. Look with those, or look with me at those two verses here. We hope in the Lord because for with the Lord there is steadfast Love with him, there is plentiful redemption. So you you see this word steadfast love. This is actually one of the great themes of the Bible. This is the word that in other places in the Old Testament is translated as God's covenant faithfulness. This is God's faithfulness to the promises that he's made. You see, isn't it just amazing? We're not in the equation. He makes the promises. He keeps the promises. That's what we hope in. We hope in God. 
We don't hope in ourselves. We don't hope in our performance. We don't hope in how strongly we're going to hold on to the promises. That's not how promises work. We just hope in the promises. Because God makes promises, and God keeps promises. And he's not a miser. This is not meager redemption where he, oh, I'll pay part of the fine, and you can pay the rest. This is plentiful, full, complete redemption that he provides for his people. He will redeem his people from every one of their sins. And I have no doubt that as William Cooper, the hymn writer, was struggling with his own depression, spiritual depression, wondering, can this God that I know truly forgive my sins? I have no doubt that he was reflecting on truths like this when he, thinking about the gospel that saves, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, wrote some words that we sang this weekend that are just powerful in their colorful description of the blood, the cross of Jesus Christ. Out of desperation, he saw Jesus and he says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and so may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. See, it has nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with Cooper. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God and the promises that he makes to his people in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we hope, secondly, in God because of the promise of his word of salvation. Verse 5, the psalmist says, in his word, I hope. Again, this is not blind hope, me as a kicker. This is not my friend in AA who tells me that her higher power is a doorknob. That's blind hope, I can assure you, right? This this is not just hope that something, you know, crazy is going to happen down the road. This is hope that is founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he proclaimed, which he enacted in his life of obedience before his Father in the place of sinners like me and you, and his death on the cross where he bore the punishment for sinners in their place, in his resurrection from death to life, to his ascension seated in heaven, to the fact that he is going to come again with glory to judge living and dead and take his own to be with him. Those are true objective facts. This is the word that says everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word that tells us that God made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the word that announces to us that Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. It's the word 
that proclaims God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the psalmist looked forward to that time when Jesus would come, when all of these things would be clarified, when the promise that God made all the way back in the third chapter of the Bible, in Genesis 3, verse 15, that he would provide a redeemer for the sin that had come into creation through Adam and Eve, that now this is being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we hope in God because of the promise of his word. And we hope in God finally because he is faithful. He will keep his promises. I think it's really helpful to just ponder in this regard, verse 6, for a minute. Here the psalmist says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. I remember as a boy reading this psalm and just like thinking, huh, that's interesting, and then just moving on and not thinking too much about it. And then, you know, later in life when I'm in college and I'm staying up all night, should have used my time better so I didn't have to stay up all night, right? But, you know, just thinking, okay, yeah, man, it's staying up all night like a watchman, that's arduous. It's long, hard work, stupid work. But, you know, they, they had to do it, right? That, is that what is going on? No, that's not what's going on. It, it's actually the opposite of that. So my soul waits for the Lord, not in this, Got to just do it. It's hard. It's long. It's painful. More than like these watchmen, you know. What, what it is, is watchmen wait for the morning. But you know what's happened thousands and millions of times every day is the sun sets and the sun rises. It happens. It might, it might take a little bit of time, maybe two, three in the morning. You know, they need another cup of coffee or something to keep awake and not get in trouble. But they know that, you know, a couple hours down the road, the sun's actually going to rise again. So they wait. Might be a little bit hard, but they wait for something sure and certain because the sun is going to rise because the sun is in God's hand and he makes it come back and they will then be done with their shifts. So we wait... We hope in something that will absolutely occur. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 130 is a glorious, short, little Pauline psalm because it reminds us of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in Christ, I pray that you find hope and encouragement in this psalm. Remember who God is. We've spoken a lot about Martin Luther over the last few days. Two of Luther's favorite words were two short little words, and he constantly reminded himself this and others. He said, our salvation is outside of us. He used the Latin expression, extra nos. So it would be Three words in English, outside of us, right? Remember that. Your salvation is outside of you. It's not because you've conjured it up. It's not because 
you're holding on so tightly to God. Remember what Jude verse 24 says. We hope in God who is able to keep us from stumbling, who will present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He will do it. Our salvation is outside of us. But if you're here and you are not a believer, I pray that you are uneasy. What awaits you, friend, is not eternal joy. What awaits you is eternal torment. You know it. You don't need me to convince you of it. Your conscience testifies to you that this is true. What you need to do is see that that is your predicament, like the psalmist saw his predicament in his depths, and you need to cry out to God. You can do that right now. You can beg God right now in your seat to have mercy on you and to forgive you. And God is gracious. God is forgiving, and he will redeem those who trust in Jesus. Out of the depths, those deep, dark places, out of the depths, I call to you. Call out to God. He is gracious to forgive. He is kind to provide redemption. He's faithful to his promises. Take heart, friends. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this little Pauline psalm and pray that our hearts would be encouraged to put our hope evermore in Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.